Let us turn to Colossians. For the past five weeks, we have, almost six weeks now, we've been in, we've been studying the Old Testament book of Ruth. It has been just a joyful experience encountering God in His providence, both His dark providence and His bright providence. And through the book of Ruth, we have seen both the perplexities and the perfections of God's sovereign care in our lives. And it has been, it's been a delight. And I'm looking forward to flipping back over to the New Testament. And over the next three to four months, Devin and I will be teaching through Paul's letter to the Colossian church. And I've entitled this series, Walking in Christ. Mike Bullmore, uh, pastor and Bible scholar, says this. He says, in studying Colossians, our goal is not to just understand our Bibles better, but to see Christ and love the life he has called us to. In studying Colossians, our goal is not just to understand our Bibles better, but to see Christ and love the life he has called us to. It's why I've entitled this series, Walking in Christ. Paul wisely understands that seeing Christ and loving the life he called us to can only be accomplished when we walk with him faithfully when we are engaging with God faithfully. In each chapter, Paul makes reference to our life with Christ and the walk that we have been privileged to. In chapter 1, Colossians 1.10, Paul writes, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. In chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, he writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. And then in Colossians 4, 5, he simply says, Walk in wisdom. So we see Paul's approach to seeing Christ and loving the life that he's called us to comes about by walking with Christ. Him. And in that walking, we will help, we will be helped to understand in this letter to this church what Paul's primary purpose in writing this letter is, which is to see the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ in all things. And the key word being see, to see Christ to see the supremacy of Christ, to see the sufficiency of Christ in all things. And that only can be seen when we are walking with Him. So I pray as we read these passages this morning and each morning, your love for Christ grows and you come face to face with the Savior. And as you come face to face with the Savior, your understanding and your appreciation and your love for the supremacy of Christ in all things and your trust for the sufficiency of Christ in all things 
is real. It's not just Bible knowledge, but you're actually seeing Christ. Now, about this letter, Paul wrote the letter to Christians living in the small city of Colossae. It was probably written around A.D. 62 while Paul was imprisoned in Rome. This letter, which is one of his prison letters, along with Philemon and Philippians and Ephesians, was written about the same time he wrote Ephesians and Philemon. In fact, Philemon and Epaphras, two men who were responsible for starting the Colossian church, were men that were dear to Paul. The ESV says this of the, the book of Colossians, of all the books in the Bible, Of all the books in the Bible, Colossians may rightly be considered the most Christ-centered. In this short letter, Paul goes to great lengths to proclaim the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ in all things and for all people. The good news of Christ's lordship over creation as well as his redemption for his people rings forth, forth from the start to finish in this epistle. Oh my rightly considered the most Christ-centered book. At the end of our Colossians series, if you are not seeing Christ, you need to get your eyes checked. Something is wrong. You, I want you, I pray that at the end of this series, as Devin and I teach this series, oh, you, you can't help but see Jesus Christ in your life. You can't help but see the work of Christ on your behalf in your life because of what he has done on the cross for you. You can't help but love Christ. And you can't help but love the life he's called you to. That is my desire. That is Devin's desire as we proceed through this book. Now, Colossae was once a very significant trade city in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. It's located in the Lycus Valley. It's about 11 miles from what we know as Laodicea. During the Roman occupation, Romans actually relocated um, hundreds of thousands of Jews into this area, into Colossae. And at the same time, they also ended up rerouting trade routes that initially went through Colossae, making it such an important city. It was known as a city that was known for Colossian wool. So it was a, an important city. But the, when the trade routes got rerouted, Colossae just diminished. And then in 60 AD, to make matters worse, it had a massive and devastating earthquake. And so this, this was not a significant and critical city where a church was started. And it was a church that Paul actually never visited. Paul had been in in Asia, in Asia Minor. He had been preaching the gospel. Luke writes in Acts 19 that all of Asia heard the gospel. And, and, and on his second missionary journey, it appears that both Epaphras and Philemon came to faith in Christ. And in their coming to faith in Christ, it's when they went and they planted this church in Colossae. And so Paul sees himself as the father of this church. So here this city is filled with many Jews, many pagans, many Gentiles who lived in this city. And it created a culture. It created an atmosphere of different religious and philosophical viewpoints that thrived and that mixed together. 
merged together. Colossae in many ways reflects the world in which we live today. Although this area is a major city, it still reflects the conglomeration, the melting pot of many philosophies and religious viewpoints. And if you look around and you're wise and discerning and you read between the lines of statements of faith or, or just what people are pushing forward, you will see this mixture. And in Colossians, Paul rightly declares it to be false teaching. He rightly sees it as heretical. Colossians in many ways reflects our world today. We are, we are surrounded by many different philosophies and religious viewpoints. We face that every day. You face it every day in your neighborhoods and in your workplaces. And these philosophies, these viewpoints impact the church today. Paul was aware of the impact it was having on the Colossian church. They distract, they undermine, they dilute, they can even shipwreck our faith in Christ if we are not careful. These philosophies are often subtle, creeping in over time through a book that is just sweeping through the Christian world. Books that appeal to the very kinds of things that were appealing to the Colossian Christians. Books like that were written a number of years ago, a book called The Shack, that was written a number of years ago that was just heresy, complete heresy. And yet, you would be shocked at the number of churches that met together in small groups and said, oh yeah, we're having a Bible study over with this book called The Shack. Just the fact they would call it a Bible study with a book that was heretical alone tells you the creep that can come in and the philosophies and the religious viewpoints that can undermine our faith. And that's just one of hundreds of books, if not thousands, that can undermine our faith in the church and in Christ. Epaphras appears founded this church after he came to faith through Christ, through Paul's preaching. And some years later, this, uh, this false teaching begins to take place in Colossae. And specifically in the Colossian church, there's this hollow and deceptive philosophies, as Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 8. There are human traditions in, in 2.8. There are elemental spirits of this world. There's not depending on Christ in verse 16 of chapter 2. There's rules advocating adherence to holy days. There's attention to angels. There's mysticism and visions. Saying all of these things are needing to be brought together to help you have a higher and special relationship with Jesus Christ. That Christ alone, God's Word alone, is not sufficient to help you encounter God in a special way. We see that in our day and age as well. These religious philosophers that were teaching this false teaching weren't just outside the church. Because you had a church of mixture with Jews and Gentiles and, and each were bringing in their historical, religious, and philosophical backgrounds. 
And this mixture began like a, like a boiling pot in the church. So you had Jews pressing forward for religious adherence to old Jewish traditions. You had pagan influences coming in through Gentiles who had been saved. And so mysticism and worship of angels were taking place. And this was all happening within the context of a local church. Now, you probably think, oh, well, that could never happen here. Oh, yes, it could. We are called to be on guard. We are called to walk in wisdom, Paul says. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so, Epaphras, as a wise pastor, notices this situation. These philosophers are invading the church. They're advocating practices. And they're creating this undermining of faith in Christ and Christ alone. And Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, there is nothing new under the sun, which is a warning to us that there is nothing new under the sun. That the same kinds of invasion can take place in Grace Church. Where adherence to rules and traditions can invade. Belief in our own ability to merit the favor of God and be paralyzed and imprisoned by legalism to look for a spiritual experience, a mountaintop experience that we would often anticipate by going on a retreat of somewhere. Those things can invade as well. Or just a book that we read that seems to stir our emotions. Not that that's bad, but how it stirs the emotions. These things can creep into the church. And so Paul wisely writes to this church because there were many in the church trying to add to the gospel. They were trying to create a spiritual elite. A group who had a special relationship with God. Now, let me just say from the outset, in the kingdom of God and in his economy at the cross, there are no spiritual elites. None. Not the, not the wisest, most effective Bible teacher in the world versus the brand new Christian. They are no different before the cross of Christ. There are no spiritual elites in the kingdom. There are spiritually gifted and gifted differently, but there are no spiritual elites. And that's what's happening here in Colossae. There are a group who are saying we are spiritually elite and trying to draw others. 
Today's scholars call the amalgamation, the gathering of all these different philosophies, syncretism, all, just a merging of different beliefs and that false teachers espoused. And we've got to be careful of that. And so Epaphras saw the troubling impact this was having on his church. And he goes to Paul. He travels to Rome. He goes to Paul and he talks to him in prison and basically says, help me. You're, you're a father to this church. You're the, the man who led me to Christ. You have a heart for these people. Help me, Paul. And so he goes to Paul and he goes to, to prison with, in prison with Paul. He visits him. Paul was not in a dungeon Roman prison as he was in 2 Timothy, but he was under house arrest. So he was allowed to have visitors come and go. And so Epaphras and, and uh, Philemon are there and Paul writes letters as he is writing Ephesians and Philemon and he writes the letters to the Colossians and for whatever reason Epaphras stays and Paul sends Tychius to go and deliver this letter. It's an effective, and this letter is simply Paul's antidote, his effective antidote to the assault on the gospel. And this letter is simply to show them Christ, to show the Colossians Christ. And this letter This letter bypasses 2,000 years and is sitting here today in front of you for the very same thing, to show you Christ. To show you the centrality of Jesus Christ alone in your life. The purpose of this letter is to provide Colossian Christians and Grace Church Christians with the resources to combat any false teaching that we face, any heresy that we might face, any subtle creeping in that we might face to expose it so that we can fully and faithfully maintain our walk with Christ. So here's my proposition this morning because we're only going to be studying verses 1 and 2. We must learn from the Colossians the centrality of Jesus in our lives that we might see Christ and love the life he's called us to. We must learn from the Colossians the centrality of Jesus in our lives that we might better see Christ and love the life he has called us to. Long before there was email and Instagram, which I... and texting and Facebook and... Twitter, I don't even know if that exists anymore. Long before these things, there was this, there was this stuff called pen and paper. You, I think you can get them in antique stores now. Uh, I, people would write letters. I remember in 1966, I was 11 years old, and the most, the most profound and, for an 11-year-old, exciting TV show began in 1966 called Star Trek. And it was, it was the future. And in fact, if you look in Star Trek, they had flip phones. They had little CDs. I mean, there's doors that open. I mean, you know, we've got all that today. And so, <laughs> so my, my younger brother and I write to Hollywood, right to the Star Trek show, asking for uh, William Shatner, Captain Kirk's autograph. And we were just thrilled when weeks later, 
in the mail comes this photograph of, of Captain Kirk in his Star Trek uniform and a, a, a signature on it and recognizing he didn't sign this. <laughs> That's auto pen. And what a huge disappointment that was to us. Just, okay, this is just thousands and thousands. I mean, even 11 years old, I'm not dumb enough to believe that William actually sat down and wrote it. What, it was a huge disappointment. And, and, and I, I say that maybe someday I'll get William's autograph. I say that because if you read the first two verses of Colossians, the greeting, and you read through the other 12 letters that Paul wrote, the greeting is basically the same. And you can kind of think Paul went on auto pen when he wrote these greetings. And that these greetings are just kind of the national anthem of his letters. We just sing it and then move on and let's get into the real game and the, the sports. But that is so far from the truth. These greetings, these first two verses have significant theological truth to them. They're not just a quick hello. Paul's opening is filled with deep theological truths that are foundational to the rest of his letters and to our understanding of how the letter is going to be relevant to us today as we read as we write this read this letter and and see what Paul wrote Paul is writing to establish in the very beginning in the first two verses a theological cornerstone for what he's about to tell them to instruct them to care for them to shepherd them to love them to watch over them he wants to protect the gospel and he wants to protect these believers so three three points this morning about this first Two, these first two verses, and let me read these first two verses, and don't read fast. Don't go ahead of me. <laughs> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Paul's greeting establishes the following three things the first one is paul's greeting reminds us of our identity in christ it reminds us it reflects for us who we are in christ Paul, in verse 1, begins by making a claim that should immediately grab our attention. The authority of this letter rests in his opening statement. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He is claiming to be an, an apostle, a messenger of God by God's will. What is most important to note is that Paul establishes from the very beginning what is the foundational truth of the gospel, God's sovereign election. That Paul was chosen by God from before the foundation of the earth, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1.4. Paul's apostolic calling is important because it gives authority to his letters. So when the, the Colossians are reading this, they know God is speaking. It's by the will of God. And so when they when they have this letter, which was publicly read, 
in a congregational setting just like this. So the pastor is standing and he's reading. They are listening to God speak. They are connecting immediately just from the greeting that God is addressing me. And as I read these first two lines, God is addressing you. Even though Paul never visited Colossae, he is the apostle who is responsible for the church. He has a pastor's heart and he has a pastor's love for these Colossians. But as important as it was to be called an apostle, it was more important how he became an apostle. He came to be an apostle by the will of God, by the sovereign election of God. Prior to his conversion, Paul hated the church. He hated the church. But God in his mercy, oh, God in his mercy loved him. And God in his mercy saved him. What an amazing turn of events to see the foremost persecutor of the church against Jesus and his people. To see him become the most ardent supporter in human history. What a spokesman he was and what a story Paul had to tell of the unfathomable riches of Christ for him that while he was an enemy of God, while he was a hater, a blasphemer of God, Christ died for him. Christ called him. That was the theme of Paul's life. That's the theme of all of Paul's letters. And brothers and sisters, our story is no different. God has loved us the same way. We were haters. We were enemies of God. We were blasphemers. We were persecutors of God and his church. And yet, like Paul, by the will of God, by his sovereign election, we are at a place now we have faith in Christ. We can see Christ. What a glorious reminder. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, And Timothy, our brother, another who was saved by God. And then Paul, in verse 2, begins to go on to what our identity in Christ is, reminding us of our identity. Verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. The first thing is to the saints. Paul calls these Colossian Christians who some have gone astray, some have bought into some of the false teaching, yet he still calls them saints. He establishes their clear identity in two ways. The first being saints. To call them saints is to remind them, is to remind you, you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Saints is this Old Testament perspective that you have been set apart. You are a called out one. You are one who has been chosen specifically by God. This is a reminder of God's history of redemption from the Old Testament to now. You are among these saints that Paul is speaking to. You've been called out of darkness. You've been transformed by the blood of Jesus who spilled his blood on the cross in redeeming us by dying for our sins. Saint is not a modern word, but it was 
modern to the Colossians. Doug Moore says this. He said, saint is to modern ears misleading. For the Hebrew and Greek words are concerned less with any excellence of character, however much that may be implied as a result, than with the commitment and loyalties of the church to God who has made her his own. In other words, our being saints is not first about our character, but about our commitment and loyalty to God because we've been called out from the old into the new, from dark into light. We've been called out. We are a part of something. We are a part of his church. We are part of his family. It's what we've been called out from and called to and set apart for. And yeah, saints does reflect our growing character as it should, but that's not primary to the word saints. Paul wants us to find our identity in being called out from something to something. You've been called out from the world, from the dark, to the light, to the church. This is your identity. You find your identity not just in your individual Christian walk. You find your identity in this local church. Secondly, not only is our identity as saints, but our Paul makes it clear this wonderful and deep theological truth to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Your identity is living in Christ. Whatever it is you live through, whatever challenges you face, listen, you live in a world that is broken. You live in a world that is perishing. You live in a world that is immoral. You live in a world that rejects God. You live in a world that, that is not moving towards God. It is moving away from God. And you are called to be in that world, to be lights, to be on mission, to proclaim the truth of who God is in the midst of that world. But you live in that world, and that is a hard place to live. And your identity as a Christian can easily be assaulted and easily be discouraged, and if not, at times, undermined. And so Paul, in the midst of a church that is facing some very difficult challenges, reminds them of this. You are in Christ. When you leave here today, if that's all you remember, those two words, in Christ. That's your identity. Doug Moo says this, these new members of God's family are located from an earthly perspective in Colossae, but more important than their physical location is their spiritual location. They are in Christ. To be in Christ is to belong to him as the originator and ruler of the new age of redemption that his death and resurrection inaugurated. In Christ is Paul's way of saying that believers are now located in new place, the kingdom of God's Son, which carries with it a total reorientation of one's existence. Listen, your life, all that you find meaningful in life, the world finds many meaningful things, all that last 
but a short time, all temporary, whether it's relationships, whether it's money, whether it's fame, whether it's success, whatever it is. They find their identity there. They find their meaning in in those things. We are reoriented that our existence is in Christ and Christ alone. And when you come in here on a Sunday morning, that in many respects is to be a refresher course for you through the singing of of biblical songs, through the preaching of God's word, through the prayers of the saints, through the fellowship that you experience as we gather together. You're to be reoriented, refreshed into your identity. You are in Christ. And when you leave here that you remember, I am in Christ. Clinton Arnold says this, he says, while saints point to God's elect and to the new identity within the family of God, in Christ highlights the new identity of this people under the lordship of Christ. See, to be in Christ is to acknowledge I live under the lordship of Christ. And to acknowledge I live under the lordship of Christ is to say that I will walk in Christ. So as you've received Christ, so walk in him. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Walk in wisdom. In the things that you once walked, walk in them no more. Your identity of being in Christ is revealed by who you walk with and how you walk. And that's because you've come under the lordship of Christ. So first, it reminds us of our identity. Secondly, Paul's opening statement reminds us of our call to live for Christ. Paul also calls them, in verse 2, faithful brothers. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. To call them faithful is really Paul's way of reminding them to be faithful to the gospel that they have received. Verse 6 of chapter 2, Paul writes in Colossians, Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That is the faithful calling that we have to walk and be faithful to the gospel. Again, Doug Moo says, Paul chooses this unusual word to remind his readers and you and me of their need to continue to maintain the allegiance to the gospel tradition that they've been taught because they were not maintaining their allegiance to the gospel tradition. They were being swayed by different things. The false teachers in Colossae promoted a spirituality that exalted human traditions, that exalted empty philosophies, that exalted mysticism and promised a fuller spiritual life rather than a full and complete life in the gospel. I can't... I can't say this enough. The, the ability of false teaching, of empty philosophies, of religious rules, of, of human traditions, of mysticism even, those things don't just come and slam you head first. They, they creep. They creep. We We read a book, and maybe 80% of the book is just spot on. But there's 20% of the book, 
And that happens with, with commentaries I read. Guys who are well-known in the Christian world, who are highly respected to a point, but then you begin to read some of their, pers- their perspectives on things like justification, and, and you realize, wait a minute, this, 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 isn't, this isn't orthodox Christianity, conservative orthodox from, from scholarly history. And you begin to see the creep. We have to guard against that. We must be faithful to keep the purity of the gospel message and not allow the perversion or opposition that swirls around us each day to shape our lives. The gospel shapes our lives because you are in Christ. And then thirdly, it doesn't remind us just of our identity in Christ. And it doesn't just remind us of our faithful call to live for Christ, but it reminds us of the promises we have in Christ. Paul ends his greeting with these familiar words in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace is a key theological concept for Paul. It expresses the fundamental truth that our status before him is wholly dependent on him alone. It's all about grace. You know that. We call ourselves Grace Church. Grace is one of those words that's become so familiar. You can become anesthetized to it. I say the word grace And you could just see some eyes glaze over like screensavers on your computer. And it just doesn't have the impact it once did. But grace is real. Grace is what brought you to be in Christ. Grace is what gives you hope. Grace is what's transformed you. Grace is what's transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life. Grace is what meets you every day. Grace is what sanctifies you. Grace is what will meet you on the day of your death as you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And grace is what you'll hear. Paul has combined a a Greek and Hebrew greeting here in this greeting, he, the, the word, normally when, when Greeks would greet one another, they would just say greetings. And Paul replaced it with, with charis, which means grace. And then he uses a Hebrew word, shalom, to extend the peace of God, a very familiar Hebrew. And it is to express the peace that we have with God to remind us that we have been reconciled with God through Jesus Christ. His request in this greeting is simply that they comprehend more fully the nature of their relationship with God, that the peace they have with God and the grace they receive from God is real to them. Doug Moo said, for Paul, grace and peace are not merely subjective experiences of kindness and tranquility. Rather, they point to the powerful, salvific work of God through Christ and the reconciliation that is already promised for the end of the age. Grace and peace, grace to you and peace from God our Father is not just a statement for you today. It is a promise for the future. 
It's a reminder that one day those are the words you're going to hear from God. Because Christ will be standing before you declaring they are mine. The application for this opening of Colossians is that this greeting, these two verses, were written for you today. Bridge the 2,000-year gap. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what he's speaking to the Colossians, he is speaking to you at this very moment. God, in his wisdom and in his love, preserved these inspired words so that you could hear them this morning. You know, many are the people and philosophies that are seeking to undermine our faith, seeking a spiritual experience, seeking to add human effort to please God, to find a mystical way of connecting more closely with God, to to doing and following rules, to somehow win favor with God. And they're all empty philosophies. They're all meaningless. Grace and peace, brothers and sisters, are found in Christ alone. And the application is simply this. We must fix our eyes on Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, so that we might love the life we have been called to and we can faithfully live the life we have been called to. That is my hope and prayer for Grace Church, that we see Christ so that we can love the life we've been called to and we can faithfully live the life that we've been called to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for preserving these words and speaking to us today that we might be cared for and protected and reminded of our identity in you and all that you have done. And I pray for every person here, Lord, as they leave this morning, that they would leave with the reminder that they are in Christ. And Lord, for any who are not in Christ this morning, who are here this morning, I pray for them, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would come to faith in you, Lord, that you would open their eyes to see their need for a Savior. Have mercy on their soul, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.